Father, we do uh, just uh, ask that uh, you would bless those I know. It's got to be trying and difficult and hard. And uh, Lord, just uh, comfort them. Uh, Lord, just give them patience, I guess, and, and uh, work mightily. And I pray that they uh, get that next flight and get out of there and get home. And so, Lord, we do uh, lift up tonight. We pray that you would minister to our hearts. God, what a great thing it is to be able to just worship you as we, as we sing and, and uh, just lift up our hearts with, with music. And now we pray, God, that we would just have that same attitude as we're in your word, that it would be worship and it would be time with you. And as we look at this, uh, this night that you spent in the garden, God, I pray that it would impact our lives and that we would understand how great our salvation is and how great our God is that he would come and invade our world and take our sin upon him so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin. So bless this time, and again, open up our hearts, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> hey, tonight I wanted to kind of deviate a little bit from Peter and, and get into uh, uh, the, this last week. So think about the last week you've had since Saturday till today and things that have gone on in your life and where you've gone and the things you've done and let's think about Jesus in that last week he was came Saturday to Mary and Martha's house and Lazarus and kind of spent that time in Bethany and then on Monday he comes over the hill and some of us were just there he comes to the Mount of Olives and comes down that road into the triumphal entry and has that tremendous time where they declare that he's the Messiah and they, they look at that. Then on Tuesday, he cleanses the temple and makes some people very angry and has that dilemma to go through. And the whole time he keeps going back to the, either the Mount of Olives or Bethany. Then on Wednesday, he comes, does some teaching, kind of a, kind of a mellow day Wednesday, and then comes Thursday. And Thursday he comes back and he goes into the city and if you remember, he sends them to find the upper room. And they go and they find the upper room and he has that last time with them and then you can read John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 of all that went on in the upper room and, and the ministry that took place there. And in the other gospels, in the, in the synoptic gospels, we have the whole story of him instituting the Lord's Supper and talking to him about that and, and recognizing one is gonna betray him and all of that emotion. So that's a lot of stuff to go through. And after they do the Lord's Supper, if you remember, then Judas goes out and gets ready to betray him. Jesus still talks to them a little bit more, right? He's encouraging those guys. And then Peter and him have their little thing, right? You guys are going to to, he tells Peter, you're gonna deny me, and Peter goes, never would I do that. And he tells him, Peter, I tell you before the rooster crows, three times you're gonna deny me. And then he tells him, but Satan wants to sift you white like wheat, but I will take care of you. How tremendous. So think of all of that's gone down, so... That's kind of our introduction to where we're at. I wanted to just kind of get us there. Now we're, now we're gonna go into the garden. We're gonna go into that place with him where Jesus spent those, those final hours before he was arrested 
and as he spent his final hour with the Lord, thinking about our salvation. And I think we gotta get a handle on that. We gotta let that impact us and understand. Listen, Jesus, obviously, I think most of us, we totally understand he didn't enter this blindly, but as he entered it, and he's in that garden, he's knowing what he's about to face, and it's not, listen, it's not the crucifixion that he's freaking out about. It's the fact that he is about to become sin for us. This one who's holy, perfect, and righteous is gonna set aside the righteousness in a sense and become sin. We set aside sin and become righteous. But he's making that choice. So that's what's going on. And I can't can't imagine, you know, because he's fully human. I know he's fully God, but he's fully human having to think about what is about to take place. So it tells us now in, in verse 39, it tells us this. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom, and his disciples followed him. So, hey, the other gospels tell us he went to Gethsemane. So he comes across, he leaves Jerusalem, or the, you know, the Jerusalem proper, comes across, goes across the Kidron Valley, and enters that garden. And obviously it was a garden where he had gone many times. And I think he had been back and forth in that garden all week. I think it was somebody he knew had a garden. The weather's fine, you could sleep out, and he'd stand in the garden. And so he'd come back and forth. And now he's gone there, and he's in that garden. The interesting thing, Gethsemane means press, olive press. And Jesus is about to be pressed down just like the olive press. The olive presses in Israel at that time would have been this humongous stone and they would have just set it on olives and just the sheer weight of it over time just would crush them to get the olive oil. Interesting that that's the garden he's going to to be crushed. So he goes into the garden and the other gospels tells us that he separates his guys, right? He tells eight of them, you guys hang out here and he takes three of them with him a little bit closer. And then he tells them to pray while he goes a little bit further. So Luke kind of leaves that out. Luke adds some other stuff, but Luke says in verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we need to be people who we understand. Listen, we need to understand the greatest way to stand against temptation is to pray, to be in the presence of God. Prayer isn't just some formal thing we do with our hands folded. Prayer is is having communion with God, having fellowship with God. And Jesus, listen, Jesus is saying, you guys, you're about to face something that you had no idea you're about to face. Number one, they're gonna face some temptation to sin, but they're also about to face one of the most discouraging times in their lives. They've given up everything and followed this guy for three and a half years. And he's about to, their, their whole idea of what was supposed to take place is about to get completely annihilated and everything changed. He says, you guys need to pray, right? You need to pray and make sure, listen, make sure you don't fall into that. Watch yourself. I find it interesting. It's, to me, when the Bible tells us to pray, we usually don't. When it tells us to do something else, we usually do that, right? We're kind of opposite people. And these guys, listen, the other, other translations, or I'm sorry, the other gospels tell us that they fell asleep. And people make excuses. You know, I've even made excuses for them. Well, you just ate that big old honking meal, you know, and, and you eat all of that, and you, you know. 
I don't think that's why they fell asleep. I think they're discouraged. I think they're hurting. I think they're afraid. I think there's so much going on in their lives right now. They're not sure. And, you know, sometimes we tend to sleep so we don't have to face things, right? I know sometimes sleep comes hard, but sometimes sleep is, a, is a out. So listen, he, he, he tells them to pray, and then it tells us in verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Now here's something I find interesting. Somebody had to be letting Luke know about this. I, I, you guys know that Luke was not one of the disciples. He wasn't part of this. Some eyewitness had to have that one, right? To say he was that far away, you know, a stone throw. Somebody's involved here, and even some of the other things you can read. Somebody's involved here telling Luke. But something we need to understand, there are times where you need to be alone with the Lord. Corporate prayer is fine. There's times Jesus is letting us know, you've got to get alone. You've got to get by yourself. And he gets alone. He goes away. It says about a stone throw. So he wants to be alone and the other gospels tell us he was sorrowful even to death. Why was he that? Why was he that emotional at this time? I don't think it was the cross. Do you understand that he's about to become an enemy with the Father? That's what's taking place, and he knows that. He knows that this is a, this is a time like no other time in all of eternity, and it's gonna be intense. Someone who's perfectly holy is about to face sin for the first time. And I believe the temptation for Jesus was not to do it, not to be afraid, but not to do it. Why, why would you, as a perfectly holy person, want to become sin? And he's gotta battle that. Now we know he's battled Satan before, right? We know when he was baptized and he went into the wilderness, they had that whole battle, he was attacked and you know, about, about dissing the cross and he made it through that and then remember at the end of that temptation what it said? Satan would look for a better time. And that's what's going on in this garden. That's what's happening as it begins to press down and, and work on him. And it says, listen, it says then, and he prayed, and here's what he says in verse 42. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we know this went on for three times, right? We know the other gospels tell us he went back, the guys are sleeping, he went back and prayed more. And he came to that place now, when he says, take this cup from me, I put up a couple scriptures that would kind of let us realize the cup represents God's wrath. Go look up those scriptures, and that's what it's about. Listen, Jesus isn't just saying, I don't want to drink a cup. He knows, he knows that he is going to absorb the wrath of God that our sin deserves. And here's what he's saying, if there's any other way, now here's what I love, and I think we all love about this, we know this, but he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is willing to submit to the will of the Father. He's willing to give himself to that. And he's saying, man, I know what this is gonna cost. I'm looking at it, I understand it, but I am going to submit to your will. We have a great God. 
We have a God like no other God. And, and so Jesus is willing to do that, and he lays that out. And, and you know, you kind of get the idea that has to be one of the most, I think, intense moments in human history. Because either this is gonna happen or it's not. We're at that place where he is going to take on the sin of the world or he's not. He has a choice what to do. And he's facing that dilemma and he prays and then it tells us even in verse 43, there's some 43 and 44 are questionable. I'll talk about it in a moment. But it says, then an angel appeared to him from heaven strengthening him and being in agony he prayed more earnestly then his sweat became like drops, like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. There's some, there's some people saying that an angel really didn't show up and this didn't really happen and there's questioning about these two verses. Now, as I read them, I think they're pretty, they're, they're kind of different verses, right? An angel shows up, comforts him, is there. His, sweats are like, his sweat is like drops of blood. I'm not sure that's as much in question. The big question is, does an angel show up? I think it would be easier to read that and go, wow, that's kind of weird, and take it out than not have it in there and try and insert it in there. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, there's some manuscripts that don't have it. So they're saying, well, it's not in some manuscripts, therefore it doesn't belong there. I'm thinking, as you know, back in the day, if I'm reading that, well, that's kind of weird, let's take that out. I think it would be more bizarre to try and insert that into something than take that out. Are you, are you tracking with me? So I think it belongs there. I think it belongs there. I think an angel showed up. I think an angel ministered to him. They're ministering spirits. And then Luke is the only one that talks about the sweats becoming like the sweat becoming like drops of blood. Not that he was bleeding profusely, but you know, it could be it could be he just saying his sweat dropped like big droplets of blood, because he says like blood. He didn't say they were blood. Or it could be that 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 thing that can happen where some of your capillaries could just start exploding and and you get some, it could be that, either one. But do you understand the intense, from this we need to understand the intense pressure that was on him at this point. Like no other time, like no other time in, in all of eternity, not just human history, all of eternity, this is going down, this is huge. And it's for one reason, because he loves us. Man, how incredible. How incredible, you know, we are, we are blessed to be able to live at this time, be in this week, privileged to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And so he's at that point, and then it tells us, and then it tells us that when he rose up, verse 45, when he rose up from prayer and come back to the disciples, now I think he's got all 11 with him, and he found them sleeping from sorrow, that's what Luke tells us they're sleeping from, not from overeating, and it says, verse 46, then he said to them, why do you sleep? And again, you, you can read the other gospels and there, there's a little bit of a conversation. I don't think he's being, I don't think he's chastising them. I think he's telling them, why are you sleeping when you should be praying? You know, and, and why are you guys doing that? So listen, and, and he says, why are you sleeping? He says, he says, rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. So once again, listen, it's not all over with. He's saying, get ready now. Because listen, right now, it is gonna get intense. And I can't imagine this next scene. Imagine you're in that garden. You've gone through all of this stuff and now all of a sudden, listen, all of a sudden, I, I think in your heart of hearts, 
you're hoping that what he said is not gonna happen, right? And you gotta be wondering, here's my sideline. What are they all thinking about where Judas went? It's interesting, scripturally, you read through it, nobody ever suspected him, right? I mean, we don't read through the whole scriptures like, oh, we knew it was Judas the whole time. Remember when they were at the table and Jesus said, one of you are gonna betray me and they all were saying, is it me, is it me, is it me? And you gotta wonder right now if they're thinking right at this moment as they're gathered back together, maybe they even looked around and went, hey Jude, no, I'm sorry. But <laughs> maybe they went, where's Judas? And they're kind of thinking about, oh yeah, he's not with us. Where did he go? And then all of a sudden, he shows up. Look at the next verse. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude who was called, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the 12, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. So now you have this guy who you had spent three and a half years with. All of you were together. This guy heard everything that Jesus said, just like the other 11. All of you were together. All of a sudden, he's walking up with this group around him, and they're following him, and they say upwards of 200 people. You had some people, Roman soldiers, you had some temple guards, you had some high priests, or priests, not high priests, but priests, you had all these people coming to arrest this one guy who hasn't done anything, and so you're, you're part of that crew. You see that mob coming at you. Had to be a little frightening. And what's Judas? Don't you think they said, I wonder what's Judas doing with him? How come he's with him? What's going on here? I don't think they would suspect anything. I think if they would have suspected it, they would have said something at the Last Supper. And then it tells us that he came to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Wow. I think Judas is one of the most vilest characters scripturally or historically. But it's interesting, the Bible doesn't paint him that way. The Bible just keeps him norm, right? I was reading some stuff from John MacArthur and I don't want to repeat all of it, but there's some, there's some other writings about him that, you know, he, you know, his parents threw him in the ocean and he didn't drown and then, you know, come out of the ocean and married his mom and just weird stuff, just some weird writings about trying to, trying to make him this villainous, vile guy. But scripture doesn't do that. Scripture keeps him just normal. But what a betrayal. And again, at that culture, you would kiss your rabbi a certain way, so this was definitely more than more than just a greeting, it was, it was deeper than that. And Jesus said, you know, like we would say, seriously? But now it's out in the open, right? Now Jesus just outed him. You're gonna betray me with a kiss? What did he just say to Judas? Judas, I know everything that you've put together. I know everything that's about to go down. And I know what's gonna happen. Now, I think the 12 just heard betrayal, or I'm sorry, the other 11. They just heard betrayal, right? So he goes through that, and then it says in verse 49, when those around him saw what was going on or what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, we shall strike with the sword. If you go back and read 
Remember Jesus said, now is the time to get a sword? So uh, evidently, Peter (laughs) went out and got a sword. Right? It's time to get a sword. So here's what they're saying, man. And this, this kind of blows my mind. You got 12 against a couple hundred. Don't worry, Lord, we got this. Right? This is kind of the... And it says, listen, it says, it says, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, Luke is kind of nice. John, not so much. Right? You read the Gospel of John, and what does John say? Peter. He lets us know it's Peter. Right? And then there's a whole dilemma. How did he cut off his right ear? It's, it is interesting, all the speculation. Everybody's saying, well, if you're right-handed, how do you cut off a guy's right ear? You're behind them, not in front of them. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows what happened? I think, I think he went to chop his head off, and he's just a really bad swordsman. He was a fisherman. But he cut off his ear. I mean, he cut off his ear. And then the next part, this next part just totally blows my mind. It says, listen, and it says, and one of them struck it and cut off his ear, verse 51. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So Jesus is like, you know, it's like, it's like Peter, don't do this stuff. You know, you're embarrassing me. And he puts the guy's ear back on. And I'm thinking, does nobody notice that the guy's ear was off and then back on? And there might be something going on here that's a little supernatural. And maybe we should back off a little bit. Oh, oh, well, even before that, according to John, when they came up, Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And what did he say? I am. He didn't say, I'm he, I am. <clears throat> they all fell over backwards. And now they're getting up. Peter cuts off one of their ears. I mean, there's some supernatural stuff that should have let people know this is not a normal man. So he sticks the guy's ear back on and, you know, and, and tells Peter to put his sword away. But listen to what he says. You guys need to let this happen, right? This has to happen. But Jesus, in, in, I'm sorry, in verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priest the, of the temple, the elders and the guards who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with a sword and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you, you did not seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus just called them a bunch of hypocrites. Like I was there every day. I didn't do, why didn't you arrest me then? Why didn't you arrest me when I was cleansing the temple? Why didn't you arrest me when we were having the last supper? Why are, you, why are you out here? And why are you out here like I'm a robber or a thief? Why are you acting that way? So now we kind of move beyond that. They arrest him, verse 54. They arrest him, they led him, and they brought him to the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Oh, Peter. He's not going to let it go, is he? He's going to stay there. You know, we criticize Peter a lot, but hey, Peter did things, Peter's there. We know John's there. The others left. Some are saying Peter shouldn't have been there because Jesus told him not to be there. But Peter's loyal, and Peter's gonna follow. Oh, it's gonna gonna get sticky here in a minute. 
but at least he goes in, at least he goes that far. He wants to see. Now, you know, a lot of people said he should have been following close rather than at a distance. I don't think that was gonna happen. I think Peter should have been praying when he was sleeping, obviously. He should have been listening when he was speaking, all of those things, but he's Peter, and he's there. So now he's following, and now he kind of gets himself in, in trouble, doesn't he? This is verse 55. Now when they had kindled a fire, and Peter sat down among them, a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with them. So now here's this, this girl with Peter, and he was with them, accusing him. But Peter denied, saying, woman, I do not know him. It's kind of interesting, Peter's denials. This first one, he says, I don't know him. It was kind of, it was kind of a, a simple way of saying things, right? I don't know him, you're wrong. It, that, but it does kind of crack me up. It, every gospel writer makes sure we know this is a servant girl, so it's telling me it's someone young, no one in power, no one in a position that could do anything, and yet he kind of backs off. He's kind of afraid of where he's at, and so he denies, I don't know him. Verse 56, after a little while, another saw him and said, you were also one of them, but Peter said, man, I am not. So the second thing he denies is being a follower of Jesus. First he says, I don't know him. Then they said, no, you're one of them. You're one of the followers. No, I'm not a follower. This is kind of getting sticky, right? Peter, Peter, think about what's going on. Think about what's happening. One of the translations says, or one of the gospel writers, I think it's Matthew, says the rooster crowed then. And then in verse 59, then about an hour, after about an hour had passed, another confidently confirmed, saying, surely this fellow, uh, this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. Now Peter's saying, I'm not even a Galilean, which would be bizarre, like somebody from, you know, Texas saying, y'all, I'm not a Texan, right? You know, it's like, come on, dude, we can tell by the way you're talking who you are. So Peter says, no, I'm not. And I'm thinking, man, so you deny knowing him, you deny following him, and you deny even being from Galilee. It's like, man, he's getting emphatic. And so Peter's, no, it's not, I'm not, I don't even know him. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Oh. Now some people want to debate whether it was a rooster or not and whether, whether it was a, a horn that blew. I, I, think it's a, I think it's a real rooster. I think they had chickens in spite of what some guides think. <laughs> and uh, I, 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 do believe, I do believe a rooster crowed because I don't think they blew that horn tw- three times. So, and again, that's up for, I guess, debate, but not in my mind. I think he heard cock a doodle doo but it broke his heart, like a lot of us. You know, we can pick on him and we can say whatever we want, but all of us are like Peter. And sometimes we're talking when we should be listening. Sometimes we're sleeping when we should be praying. Sometimes we're doing when we should be idle. Sometimes we're cutting off people's ears when we should be putting our sword away. And we're, doing, we're just doing things and we need to understand. We can all be that and not be so hard. But man, he hears that rooster crow and I believe, listen, I believe the moment that rooster crowed, I believe Peter's eyes turned and this, this is great. I love this in Luke. 
And Luke's the only one that records this. And it says, verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, you gotta understand at this time, Jesus is being shuttled back and forth. I don't know if you understand, Jesus went through six different trials. He went through three Jewish religious trials and three trials with Herod and with Pilate, Herod and Pilate. But he's going through these trials, he's being shuttled back and forth because there's confusion because on this holiest day for Israel, they're breaking every possible law they could break to try and get this guy and get him crucified. So they're holding a trial at night. First they take him to Annas' house. If you read the other gospels, Annas was, I like to call Annas the godfather of the day. Annas was not the high priest. He was a former high priest, but he still kept the power and the position. And Annas was the one that kept all of the, all of the market going and all of the selling of animals and the exchanges of dollars and, and or dollars. The exchange of money for shekel money, for temple money. He kept all of that bazaar. It was called Annas's bazaar at the temple, the thing that Jesus just wrecked a few days before. He hated Jesus. He hated Jesus because Jesus is ruining his gig. He's controlling everything. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is the recognized high priest, but he had other, he had other uh, sons involved, and so they're all involved in this corruption. They take him to him first. Annas tries to get Jesus to confess things. He doesn't. And then right here, I think, is when they, they take Jesus over to Caiaphas's house. So they're all in this compound, but they take him, and as they're taking him out, their eyes meet. And I think Peter had an idea where Jesus was, and I think when that rooster crowed, he knew at that moment, I remember what he said. But what did Jesus say? I will restore you. Don't worry, I will restore you. And I think that hit his heart when that rooster crowed, he goes, I know what I did, but I'm also promised safety. And his eyes met the eyes of Jesus. That had, again, that had to be one of the most dramatic things. And how do you think Jesus looked at him? You think Jesus looked at him with that look that you ladies give husbands? <laughs> we all know the look. Us guys know the look. It's like, it's no secret. Or do you think he looked at him with compassion? Do you think as they met their eyes, do you think that Peter realized at that moment, it's gonna be okay? I blew it big time, but it's gonna be okay. And Jesus didn't have to say a word to him. There's just that, that connection, right? I love this scene. I, I wonder why others didn't keep it in there. But you just have that special, that connection. And it tells us, listen, it tells us then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. That's repentance. Peter goes out, and for homework, you gotta read John 21. When Peter gets restored and Jesus talks to him. But that went down, and then it tells us in verse 63, it says, now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and they asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? 
and many of the things they bla- and, and many other things they blasphemed against their blasphemy it spoke uh, I'm sorry they blasphemously spoke against him and as soon as it was day the elders of the people both the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council so finally he goes to trial before Annas then he goes over to Caiaphas house and they do this stuff and they try him now they take him before this council called the Sanhedrin. This, this would be the equivalent of our Supreme Court. And again, they had laws. They couldn't meet at night, but they met at night. They were never supposed to interrogate a witness without a, a, a defendant. They weren't supposed to question him without people present. They, they broke every single law they could ever think of breaking. And not just, not just civil law, but the law from Deuteronomy and from from uh, Exodus and, and Leviticus. They broke all those laws that God had set up so everything would be fair. And now it's, awesome. it's, it's to me mind-boggling they're taking the one who gave the law and breaking every law he gave them to condemn him. So now they take him before the Sanhedrin, which again, they're trying to get things done before Passover. They gotta get it done before this holy day begins, which is just weird, right? Let's rush to judgment. So they bring him in. They bring him into the Sanhedrin. They tell him, now you gotta remember, Caiaphas is part of the Sanhedrin. Probably Annas is part of it. They've already, they've already got him. Basically, they, they've, in their minds, know he's the Messiah. They know who he is, but they're not gonna accept it. So then they say, if you are the Christ, tell us in verse 67. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will no means believe me. So here's what he's saying. Why should I answer you? If I am, I am the Messiah, but you're not gonna believe it because I'm not the Messiah you want the Messiah to be, and all you want me to do is say that so you can execute me. So, you know, I'm not gonna say it because you wouldn't believe me anyway. And then he says, in verse 68, and if I also ask you, Will you, by, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Here's what he's saying. We're not gonna get anywhere here. You've already condemned me. You've already made up your mind. It's a done trial, so I'm not gonna have this long discussion with you. Gotta kinda love the, the, the point blank of Jesus. Let's just get this over with, right? Hereafter, but here's what he says. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Oh. Psalm 110, he just like threw some scripture in their face to let them know, and here's what he's saying, I am the Messiah. And greater than that, I'm the son of God. And I'm in the flesh right in front of you. How are you gonna deal with that? So he's challenging them, but he's also challenging us. How do we deal with that? Is Jesus the Messiah? This one, Jesus, we call Jesus Christ, is he the Messiah? Is he the son of God? Is he the savior of the world? Did he come and die for our sins? Here we are, 2022, and there's still, listen, there's still the argument of who he is. You can pick up, you can pick up probably Newsweek this week or, or something online and people are gonna deny that this one who we're celebrating that was in that garden, that was in this trial, that went to the cross, that died for our sins, that rose again on the third day, 
there's still a whole bunch of people who are gonna deny that. Religious people. There's gonna be Christian people, quote, who deny that. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, I am, I am, bottom line, I am God. Verse 70, then they all said, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you rightly say that I am. Wow. Wow. It always amazes me where people say that the Bible never says that Jesus is God. When people tell me that, here's, here's my pat answer. Obviously, you've never read your Bible. Here's the thing we need to understand, whether people get it today or not. That group of 70 men that were sitting on that council were convinced that he right there claimed to be God. That's why they're coming against him. They understood it. They perceived what he was claiming. I'm not saying they recognized it. They know what he was claiming. And if Jesus is claiming to be son of God, he's either God or a liar, right? So they understand, and then it tells us Verse 71, and they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it from ourselves from his own mouth. And now they hand him over to Rome. But I just wanted to look at that last night in the garden and think about what our Lord did for us. Before we get to the cross, the cross is intense and the cross is powerful. But even before the cross, what he endured so that we could be set free from sin. What a great God. And that he loves us and he cares for us and he's not gonna stop. And the fact that you and I tonight need to recognize, is he the Christ? Is he the son of God? And as we put that in our hearts, we can go through the rest of, you know, to me this week looking at at uh, tomorrow and the crucifixion. And, you know, it's great as families to read that together, to sit and, and, and think about that and meditate on that and pray through that. And then we come to Sunday, hallelujah. And we have a God who did everything for us. And here's what he says. All I want you to do is believe. Just believe. We don't have to do, listen, we don't have to do great things for God. Our God did great things for us. He just wants to, wants to have fellowship with us and walk with us. So maybe tonight you came and you're not a believer, it'd be a good time to make that change. Be a good time to recognize this, this is the son of God. I, I, I get it now. But as we get ready to go, I want us to just think about again that week that he walked through and he did it all knowing what was gonna come but he did it because he loved us. Let's stand up and pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word, God, and just the power of your word. And I think about what we've read. I think about just what we've looked at and, and the fact that God, you uh, in your power and in your grace that Lord you 
willingly, knowingly took our sin upon you. And I don't think, I, I pray that we would never get over just the awe of that. Sometimes we get in a place in our life where we kind of think we deserve and uh, we should be saved and yet we come to the reality there's nothing good in us. And I thank you, Jesus, for taking our sin and taking it to the cross and taking what I deserved, what everyone in this room deserved, and taking that punishment so that we could be set free from that. And as we think of you that night on your knees, facing the reality of what that looked like, and crying out one last time that maybe there's a different way that we would begin to understand the intensity of what happened on that cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for taking our sin. And I'm gonna ask you to stay in an attitude of prayer for a couple more moments. And if you are here tonight and you've never come to the place where you've asked Jesus to forgive your sin. You've never come to the place where you've asked him to come into your life. Tonight is the night. This is a good time to do it. Tonight is the night to recognize the fact that number one, you've got to come to grips with the idea or with the reality that you are a sinner. You have sinned against a holy God and because you've sinned, you deserve his wrath. If you come to that and admit that, that's scary. That's kind of bad news. The good news is what we read. Jesus is going to go to the cross for your sin. He's going to take your place. And you have to trust him. You've got to believe him. And so tonight you need to make that decision. You're going to believe him or you're not. But it's your choice. My prayer is that right now you would call on the name of the Lord then you would let him know you need his work on the cross. So I'm gonna say a prayer. You can say this prayer with me out loud. You can you say it silently. Volume isn't the issue. The issue is it's gotta come from your heart. You have to be sincere tonight. And you have to let him know tonight you want that gift of salvation. So I'll lead you in this prayer. And you can, again, repeat it after me. If you're backslidden, Man, you showed up at church because it's that, quote, Easter week, that holy week, and maybe you just kind of came in because you're feeling a little, a little guilty about where you've been. Well, right now's the time to front slide. Just come home, come back to Jesus. If you're watching online, you can say the prayer right where you're at. You don't have to be in this building. But you do need to be sincere. Jesus, tonight I confess to you that I am a sinner. I'm sorry that I sinned against you. And right now I'm asking you to forgive me. Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you tonight for your forgiveness. And now I want you to come into my heart and change me. Jesus, come into my life and guide me.
tonight, I'm asking you to be my Lord and my Savior.